Metaxas Show with your host, Eric Metaxas. All right. We're starting the show, Albin. We're yeah, starting the show. I love it. I think we've already started the show. Oh. All right. We mm-hmm. started the show. The show's almost over. Oh. Actually, no. We're just beginning the show. Mm. We're beginning the show. Uh, in a couple seconds, ladies and gentlemen, our friend John Zmirak yes. will come on to breathe fire like the dragon that he is. He is amazing. In a couple of minutes, John Zmirak. Hey there, folks. Uh, as you know, it is my privilege uh, to be friends with and have as a regular weekly guest, John Zmirak on the program. And just to prove it, here he is. Hello, John. Eric, always a pleasure to talk to you. Look, um, let me ask you one question before I forget. Uh, I'm going to be in Dallas for uh, this this event, um, this conference. Christians engaged. I'm going to be speaking at it too. Okay, that you answered my question. I was reading. I was trying to tell my audience, "Hey, I'm coming to Dallas. Please come and hear me." Christians engaged is the conference. If you want to hear, me. I'm not going to be in Dallas. I don't think at all this fall, as far as I know, except for this event. Because uh, none of those churches invited me to preach because they're scared. But let me tell you something. I'm going to be at this event and I'm telling my audience, hey, I'm going to be in Dallas at this event and I'm reading who else is going to be there. And I'm reading down and, and you know, it says it's it's um, ChristiansEngaged.org. If you want more info, ChristiansEngaged.org, September 23rd, 24th. That's like coming up. And I'm reading and I'm saying, hey, Robert Jeffress is going to be there. Congressman Chip Roy is going to be there. And then I read John Smirak and I thought, wait a minute. Yeah. John Smirak never, never speaks publicly. He's too unfiltered for anyone to take him up on that. And even if they even if they don't understand that, John himself will say, no, please, I don't want to speak publicly. Who knows what I'll say? But it says here that not only is Eric Metaxas going to be there, John Smirak is going to be there. John, you're telling me. This is real. This is not a hoax. I am sending my my pair of long pants to the dry cleaners. Okay. The one I have, the the khaki, the one pair of khaki long pants I have. So this is real. Yeah, it's for real. real. Bunny Pounds is a great woman and Christians Engage is a great organization. And it's a 15 minute Uber ride away from my house. So I really had no excuse not to take part when they requested me. Okay. Well, I'm speaking as part of a panel and you and I are doing an interview on the Thursday of that week, and then on s- Friday you're speaking, and Saturday I'm speaking. Well, it's a different. Uh, yeah, you you and I are doing some other stuff, some side stuff. Yeah, side stream dot org. Yeah, and uh, but we're, Bunny we're gonna, Pounds is a real name. Bunny Pounds is a real name, and no joke. Stop it. She's a very nice woman. Bunny Pounds is a real name, and I want to tell you something, folks. John's Merrick and I are going to be at this conference. I I just I said I've got to clarify this because. Sometimes people throw stuff, throw names around, and he's like, well, he's not. Gonna, you're going to be there. So you yeah. and I are going to be at ChristiansEngaged.org in Dallas, September 23rd and 24th. Folks, if you can get there and don't, something's wrong with you, all right? And I'm speaking Let me tell as a people. medical doctor. You need to understand. Uh, Christians Engaged is the organization that they said we, we exist to help Christians be good citizens and vote and understand civics and take part in politics. And the IRS took away their tax exemption and sent them a letter saying Bible reading and 
religious activism generally associated with Republicans. So we are denying your tax exempt status. It was so obviously written by one of the IQ 85 people at the, at the, at the organization. Um, when she challenged it, the IRS had to cave, but she, def- she beat took on the IRS and won getting her tax exemption restored. So, well, you know, this good organization. Up, I was um, uh, telling Alvin yesterday that over the weekend, I was in Colorado Springs. Now, the problem with going to Colorado Springs is that the altitude is, you know, 6,000 feet above sea level. I was born and live at sea level. And when you go up there, the lack of oxygen, whatever, messes me up. And then I spoke at a conference. Um, it's uh, at, at Karis Bible College. That was closer to 9,000 feet. So it really, um, it really messed me up. But the reason I'm telling people this and I'm, I'm taking your time, John, is because Mario Murillo spoke. A lot of people don't know who he is. Ladies and gentlemen, there are just a tiny handful of people like Mario Murillo. I've never seen anyone bolder, uh, more in tune with, with what God is saying. I don't say that lightly. And what he talked about, you just got me thinking, John, the level of evil that is manifesting itself in the United States of America right now. When you hear about the government going after an organization like ChristiansEngage.org and saying, well, we're going to take away your tax exempt status. This is evil. And if you don't get angry at this, something's wrong with you. You're, 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 you're trying to pretend it's not happening. And by the way, that is about the most anodyne little thing you could possibly mention. But I just thought, when Mario Murillo spoke, he spoke about some of the genuinely wicked things done. And there are people in the church convinced that somehow the Christian thing to do is to be quiet or to be nice. I mean, if somebody mutilates your children, are you not going to fight? Are you not going to stand? Are you not going to do? There are things happening that you know, a, apart from the literal mutilation of children because of the transgender madness, if you don't speak up, if you don't get angry and say, I have an obligation to fight for what is right and true, the idea that I can't be political, you are absolutely hiding from reality. And I just want to be really blunt, folks. God's going to judge us when we are silent in the face of evil. Um, God calls us to speak. And not only will God judge you, I will judge you. I will be in, have been in the gulag for a couple of years before they finally come and get you. And when you show up, I will laugh at you. I will judge you. So exactly. That That's the most important thing. No, but <laughs> I, I mean, I tell you, forgive me, uh, John, but I, you know, when you tell me that, that the IRS or whoever is trying to bother Christians engaged, that it's an, another good reason to go to ChristiansEngaged.org, folks, uh, because we have to stand uh, with those who are who are being persecuted and uh, vilified, attacked um, in any event. Well, John, uh, well, I've got a piece at the stream that relates to this, and it's an unusual title. Is the Trump movement like Syria's Kurds an indispensable ally for Christians? Is the uh, Trump movement like Syria's Kurds an indispensable ally for Christians? Like um, Syria's Kurds? An indispensable ally for Christians, for Christians. Okay, let me guess. Yes. Yes. So I tell the story of 
two very similar Christian communities in very similar circumstances with tragically different outcomes. The Christians of Iraq had, and the Christians of Syria at circa 2001, on September 11, 2001, they were in very similar situations. They were dependent on the goodwill of secular Arab dictators, Saddam Hussein, Bashir Assad. The U.S. fights this pointless war in Iraq based on weapons of mass destruction that never existed. Our our regime, our occupation, does not protect the Christians. The, the, The Muslims are infuriated that the American crusaders are in their country, so they start attacking the local Christians who are helpless, helpless scapegoats. They had all been disarmed by the government. Saddam Hussein, like a good tyrant, had gun control. America, being good liberals, we kept gun control laws in Iraq. The Islamists, like other criminals, don't obey gun control laws. So they got lots of guns. The Christians of Iraq (coughs) obeyed the law, counted on the government to protect them, were slaughtered. Three-fourths of the Christians in Iraq, who'd been there since the apostles, the the churches had been there since the second century, three-fourths of Iraq's Christians were killed or driven into exile. Um, And if you want to help them, Go to Iraqi Christian Relief Organization. They really do need your help. It's tragic because they were disarmed. They were helpless in the face of ISIS. When ISIS marched into the city of Mosul, which had 1.6 million people and tens of thousands of Christians, like 100 guys from ISIS took over a city of more than a million people because they'd all been disarmed by the government. 100 guys took over and terrorized the city of 1.6 million people, burned all the churches, drove all the Christians out, raped the women, set up rape camps where they traded them. Uh, Horrendous, tragic outcome. That is what happens when Christians trust a secular government that doesn't like them to protect them. And the secular government here in America clearly likes us less and less with each passing week. So... As I've written, and I've got a book on this coming out on this called God and Guns versus the Government, the more hostile the government becomes, the more important our gun rights become. Now let me tell the story of Syria. In Syria, do you remember the Arab Spring when democracy was going to come to the Arab world? Well, how'd that work out? John, we're going to we have to go to a break here, but I I just have to remind my audience just so that they're tracking with the conversation, the lunacy of the Arab Spring, the lunacy that the idea that democracy could break out in a place like that, the naivete of the people who put forward that narrative. And then we saw it collapse and they never bothered to say, oh, oh, yeah, we were wrong about that. When we come back talking to John Zmirak uh, for the rest of the hour and more, don't go away. the joy of speaking with our friend John Zmirak. John, uh, you have an article at stream.org. People need to know to go to stream.org and find your article. The title is, Is the Trump Movement Like Syria's Kurds, an Indispensable Ally 
for Christians. Right. So I was telling the story of the devastation of the Christians of Iraq after the American invasion in 2003. In Syria, something similar seemed likely to happen. The Arab Spring was going to bring democracy to Syria, was going to overthrow its evil dictator. And the the American liberals and American neoconservatives were all gung-ho excited that it was going to overthrow this Arab dictator. Only problem was the people who were going to overthrow it were radical Islamists linked to al-Qaeda. Uh, John McCain lied to us about that. He flew over there and said, I vetted them. They're, they're moderate rebels. They're moderate, moderate. During the 2016 presidential campaign in the foreign policy debate among Republicans, out of all those like 12 or 13 Republican candidates, all of them but three wanted to shoot down Russian planes to help these Al-Qaeda-linked Islamist jihadis take over a country with a million Christians and, of course, ethnically cleanse them like they had in Iraq. Only Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump said, no, maybe we should not put Al-Qaeda that attacked New York in charge of a million Christians and a bunch of other Muslim minorities. Maybe we shouldn't put jihadists who want Sharia in charge of a whole country. The three names you mentioned. Now, folks, this is where we are in America. This is where we are. Of all of these Republicans, only Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and Rand Paul saw the true situation as John is now describing it. Let's think about this for a second. The Republican Party is filled with jugheads, filled to the brim with jugheads who, I mean, this is extremely important stuff. And they were dead wrong on this. They were dead wrong. neocons, correct? No, yeah, they were neocons. Yeah, but otherwise decent people like Marco Rubio, they were just following the, the talking points that their neocon uh, sponsors had handed them. Well, so Trump, thank God, becomes president. Instead of helping the Islamist radicals and instead of just giving in to the secular government of Syria, which is a tyranny, and it protects the churches, but it controls them. It has its secret police in with the bishop. It, it, it like tapes the, bed, the, the bishop's palace and controls everything the church does. Some of the Christians in Syria aligned with the Kurdish rebels, this nationalist populist group of people from a Muslim background, but they're not particularly religious, They allied with secular national populists, a lot, in a way, like Donald Trump, people who just wanted to help their country. They allied with them. These Christians formed a militia, and they and the Kurds fought against the jihadis on the one side and the secular Arab dictators, Assad, on the other, and they established a region, like a one-fourth of Syria is now a little island of religious freedom, pluralism, democracy, empowerment for women. It is the only place in the Middle East where you're free to preach the gospel outside of Israel. It's the only Muslim country where you're free to evangelize and Muslims are free to convert. And thousands of Muslim Kurds have become Christians. And there are new Kurdish Christian churches all over this region because it's legal. It's not legal anywhere else. You can't preach the gospel in Turkey or in, even in Jordan, you can't preach it in Egypt. They tolerate Christians, but basically you have to be born one. You can't convert. It's illegal. There's the death penalty for converting to Christianity in much of the Muslim world. So in Iraq, 
They trusted the government and they, they didn't get guns. They let the government keep them from having guns. And they were tragically persecuted and slaughtered. In Syria, the Christians joined the populist nationalist movement, helped the Kurds, got guns. And in 2017, they defeated ISIS. ISIS was conquered by the Kurds and the Syrian Christians. They conquered the caliphate and wiped out the last square inch on earth of ISIS's territory. That's what happens when Christians insist on their God-given right to, to own guns for protection against crime, but more importantly, against tyrannical governments. And that's why it's in the Constitution. I, you know, John, I can't wait. I know you're, you've got a book coming out on this, but in the meanwhile, and by the way, I'm going to write the foreword to that book because, you know, folks, we need to understand this. Right now, uh, you can understand it by reading John's articles at stream.org, but we need we need to understand this. This is at the very heart of everything. The idea that in 1776, uh, Americans understood that they needed to fight back against tyranny. It was horrible tyranny, and they understood that if, if they don't defend themselves, they will be crushed, they'll be enslaved, they'll be treated like dogs, like second-class citizens, to put it mildly. Um, this is something we need to understand. We need to understand the biblical roots of, of why f- freedom uh, is, is something that deserves our, our efforts. Uh, uh, and, I, and I feel like I was saying earlier, John, that there are many in the church today who absolutely don't understand this stuff. They have this kind of really false pacifist view. It's not real pacifism, uh, but it is, it's a false pacifist. Uh, you know what it view. is? You know what it is? It's Ned Flanders Christianity. Yeah. Is the Christianity someone who's always been safe, who's always lived in a safe neighborhood, who's always been able to count on the sheriff to show up and is not worried that anything's going to really happen to them so they can talk about suffering and the cost of the discipleship? And there you go. We'll be back with plenty more with John Zmirak. Don't forget ericmetaxas.com. Sign up for the newsletter today. Thank you. And if you care, don't let them Don't give yourself away I'm a bit loved from both sides now We used to laugh We used to cry We used to bow Folks, talking to John Zmirak Um, John, uh, I want to tell people again Go to stream.org And folks, tell your friends Use your social media to take these videos, send them to your friends, put them out on social media. If you're not subscribed to ericmetaxas.com, to the newsletter, you're not getting these videos. Uh, The articles that John writes at stream.org, we've got to spread this information. It's absolutely vital. John, you wrote another article. This is sort of horrifying. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to let you talk. It's called the left hires its zealots. It has the right idea. And the, the news hook for this is, is a very unfortunate one. Um, whenever I hear the word monkeypox, I feel good. I smile because it's a funny word. It's a really funny word, monkeypox. I mean, come on, that is funny. And then when you hear that you can pretty much only catch it by going to public orgies with hundreds of other men, you know, I think I can dodge that bullet. 
Somehow I think I'm going to be able to avoid this one. Um, so when I hear about monkey bikes, I laugh a little bit. Sorry. Uh, but the government's taking it very seriously. This is a threat to one of the most sacred institutions in America. That is public orgies with hundreds of anonymous men. Of course. And so the, the government has actually appointed a monkeypox czar. And he is not a member of the Romanov family, so he's not even a legitimate czar. But uh, the monkeypox czar is uh, Dimitri Dalaskalis, who is a Harvard-educated doctor who is also a, into sadistic, be, sadomasochistic male sex. He wears leather studs over his naked chest. On his belly is, is a blasphemous tattoo of Jesus. He has posed with his boyfriend wearing a crown of thorns. He posed with a witch misusing a crucifix on a Ouija board. Okay, let, runs- let's be clear. Let's be yes. clear. The, the point here, at least one of the main points here, this person is doing this publicly. Yes. We're, we're, we're not doing investigations. And, and it, this person is publicly representing America has been appointed by President Biden and is publicly putting out some stuff that is so vile, folks. I just want to tell you. uh, It's hate speech. It's anti-Christian hate speech. That's what Satanism is. It's vile to the point where, you know, you don't need to look into it. Some people can look into it. I posted it on Twitter. Thanks to you, John. I posted the article that you're referring to. But it's unbelievably vile stuff. This is only one, only one of the folks like this that Biden has appointed. There are others. We don't need to mention them. But it is when I tell you it's vile, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you this administration, they don't just disagree with us on some issues. They are, as John is saying, they are they are pushing people absolutely viciously anti-God, anti-Christian, in your face with their sexuality. I mean, it is really horrifying. And we have to understand what we're up against. And in my article of the stream, I say we should do the same thing. When we take power, we should not be appointing people like Nikki Haley and Jeb Bush and mealy mouth centrists trying to appeal to some imaginary middle in American politics. We should be appointing our own pro-Christian, pro-American zealots, people like Steve Bannon, people like Darren Beatty, people like Julie Kelly, people who have fought for the January 6th protesters. Heck, what I want to do, I want the January 6th protesters pardoned, and then I want them all to run for Congress, and I will support them all, even the nuttiest ones, because the left supports its nut jobs, and and by doing so... By doing so, it gains power. When you support your nut jobs and you stand behind them instead of throwing them under the bus like we threw Steve King of Iowa, who actually was innocent, but what, but the, the right, if anybody on the left says somebody on the right has gone too far, you're going to find people at National Review will say, oh, no, no, that's an extremist. We want nothing to do with that. What does that do? It gives the left veto power over us. To hell with that. No, you stuff your, we su- need to stuff our zealots down their throats, demoralize them. But but I want to be clear, uh, John, at least, you know, where I'm coming from, I, I feel like I want to bring some context 
to what you're saying. You're, you know, you're not saying it, it, it's kind of, in other words, people would, would, would take what you say and, and I imagine could misunderstand it. What John is saying, at least in part, what he's saying is that we've been playing a game. We're dealing with evil. And when you don't recognize that you're dealing with evil, you do not fight the way you need to fight. We have people um, who have been marginalized, not just by the Republican Party, but by lots of conservatives. They've been marginalized and ignored. They are fighting with everything they have. They are taking bullets. They are taking shots for the team, for America, for liberty. And we act like, well, we don't want to go that far. Exactly. You need to understand how far the other side has gone. This is the the person that John mentioned. This is the tip of the iceberg. Some of it is so vile that I don't talk about on this program and I don't even post it on social media. But I want you to know, folks, it is almost unbelievable how naked the evil is. It's not even pretending to hide anymore. It is posting these people like the one that John mentioned. They are posting this unspeakably vile stuff all over social media. They're not saying well, that's what I do in my private life and it's my business. They are pushing it out, even though they're being paid by your tax dollars. This guy, Dimitri Dallascalis, runs a Satanist gym in a converted Episcopal church in New York, using the imagery of Christ in sacrilegious ways in a gym themed around sadomasochist exercise plans. I mean, I can't even... When I used to write nasty satirical novels that I stuck in the drawer, even I couldn't have imagined things would be as deranged in the mainstream of the Democratic Party as they are in 2020. The Democrats want to castrate kids. They want to subject them to porn actors and, and, and sex workers as part of drag queen story hour. They want abortion up through birth. They want to take away our guns so that we're helpless. They want to lock us in our houses and close our churches at will and censor all the media by claiming that if you or I say something, it's a threat to public health. It, it doesn't get much worse than this, folks. We're folks, really uh, in Soviet territory. Better wake up. You better wake up. We'll be back. Uh, more John Zmirak uh, at, at the beginning of our uh, two, stick around. This is my video, 11 Differences. I'm a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics. I'm a practicing doctor. If you like this video, this is what you get on the channel. You get... Uh, evidence-based appraisal of complex biomedical topics and, and policy topics of the day. Welcome back to the channel. Recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized a bivalent vaccine, 50% Wuhan, 50% BA4 or 5. It was authorized on the basis of experiments with 8 to 12 mice. No human trials were conducted. And critics of this vaccine say that the FDA has lowered the bar too low for an additional booster dose of a bivalent vaccine. 
Proponents say that it's just like the flu vaccine. We have a new flu vaccine each year. We don't always run human trials before we do it. We go abroad, we go to Australia, we go to, we go to Asia. We figure out what strains might be coming to the US and we make a vaccine from that. That's how we do flu. That's how we can do COVID-19. So the COVID-19 shot and the flu shot, are they the same thing? In this video, I'm going to give you 11 reasons why the analogy is entirely misplaced. It is completely farcical. It's absolutely wrong. And anyone who says it is uh, pushing propaganda rather than science. So here are my 11 reasons. Number one, the COVID-19 vaccine is far more reactogenic. It's far more reactogenic. It has higher rates of adverse events than the flu vaccine. And that's a salient difference. The flu vaccine, after people got it, never resulted in people taking a day off work the next day. People didn't routinely take a day off work, but that's different with the COVID-19 vaccine. Reactogenicity or immunogenicity and adverse events in the short term are objectively higher with the COVID-19 vaccines. It has more myalgia, muscle aches, fever, chills, night sweats than the flu vaccine. I think that's obvious for anyone who's looked at this issue. So that's one difference, why? But we got, a, we got 10 more to go. Number two, the flu vaccine tries to predict what strains might be coming to North America, whereas the COVID-19 vaccine is built on strains that have already been to North America. They've already come. They've already been here. It's a fundamental difference. When we make the flu vaccine, we look abroad. We try to pick the types that we think will play a role in our, in our fall season. We may not always get it right, and that's why vaccine effectiveness against flu can be so volatile and so poor year to year. But with the COVID-19 vaccine, we're not even trying. We're not trying to predict what might come. We're giving you 50% Wuhan, which by the way, is not in circulation anymore, and 50% BA.4.5, which has already swept through America. So it's not about what is coming in the future. It's about what's been here in the past. And that's salient difference number two. Let's go to number three. COVID-19 is actually currently the infection fatality rate is less lethal than flu. So this is another important difference. COVID-19 is less lethal than the flu. I'm gonna put up on the screen either my favorite graph from Financial Times showing the IFR over time in the United Kingdom, showing that it has actually passed the influenza threshold downward, or maybe a graph from uh, Financial Times showing uh, the IFR by age, showing that the COVID-19 IFR is now lower in 2020. We're not talking about, sorry, 2022. We're not talking about 2020. We're talking about the present moment. We have to make policy for the present moment. And it's currently less lethal. And that's a salient difference. And it's also far less deadly or harmful for younger people than seasonal influenza. And that's yet another reason why you might want to have a different policy. Number four, maybe, just maybe, this whole analogy between the COVID-19 shot and the flu shot might make us rethink the flu vaccine's evidence. Just because we've been doing something for 20 years or more doesn't mean we have to continue that in the future. The current level of evidence for the annual flu shot is animal data and then just debuting the vaccine widely and then looking later in a test negative case control fashion, a particular type of study design to evaluate the vaccine effectiveness. But as I've talked about on this channel and as I've talked about on my Substack, test negative case control designs are potentially inaccurate. They can be plagued by selection bias, they can have built-in confounding, and they don't always give you a reliable estimate. I believe they tend to be upwardly biased. And Previously in my Substack, Vinay Prasad Observations and Thoughts, I've debunked many test negative case control studies. So I guess it's an important question, which is why do we have to use test negative case control to prove vaccine effectiveness for flu? We could run randomized controlled trials. The makers of the flu shots are getting plenty of money. We could have them run a study in the Southern Hemisphere to give us a future glimpse as to what that vaccine might do in the Northern Hemisphere. 
So I think if anything, a lesson of this comparison is we should be demanding better evidence for flu shots. And we certainly need better evidence for this COVID-19 bivalent booster. That's the opinion of many people, which I will come to in this 11 point series. Number five, it's a novel platform, mRNA. And there are unknown unknowns that we still don't know. Now, it's a bit trite to say they're unknown unknowns, but there but, but there are, and it's an important thing. And when you approved the first COVID-19 vaccine by EUA, sorry, when it received an emergency authorization, not an approval, an EUA in the fall of 2020, um, we could reasonably estimate the known risks and benefits and the unknown risks and benefits. And it was abundantly clear that whatever was unknown couldn't possibly outweigh the known benefit to say a 70 year old person who was unvaccinated uh, who could get COVID-19. That known benefit was so tremendous in the randomized control trials that there wasn't anything out there that could be a signal that could swamp that. But as you move forward into booster after booster after booster, year after year, novel constructs without randomized data, the balance of known and unknown risks and benefits shifts substantively. And now we're in a situation where we just simply don't know what will happen to somebody if they get four or five or 10 or 25 boosters with mRNA. And that's different than flu, which does not use a novel platform like this. Some things you just learn with time. Number six, the FDA commissioner. There was this very interesting quote by Bob Califf, the FDA commissioner. I'm going to put it up on the screen. The first sentence I think is defensible. The second sentence, oh boy, the second sentence. Let's read this. Let's read this. Quote, Bob Califf, the FDA commissioner, being vaccinated and boosted reduces your risk of dying or getting critically ill and going to the hospital. I don't think anyone can argue with that. He's got randomized data. He's got observational data. He can, he can make that claim fairly. The updated booster also increases your chances of being in attendance at upcoming gatherings with family and friends. And that's where he's just making things up. He's absolutely lying to the American public. The commissioner of the FDA does not have any evidence to support that claim. In order to prove that the updated booster would mean you are more likely to attend upcoming gatherings, and by that I assume he means that you are less likely to be sick with COVID, so more likely to be present, you would have to have some human data to support that claim. He doesn't have human data to support that claim. He doesn't even have, he doesn't have a randomized study, certainly not. He doesn't even have a flawed, confounded observational study. He has no basis to say that, and he's the commissioner of the FDA. They're not supposed to be in the business of doing Pfizer's marketing for them. In fact, if Pfizer were to make this statement, I believe the FDA has the legal authority to fine them for false information, for false advertisement. And yet they don't have to fine them because in this case, it's the commissioner of the FDA who disgracefully uses his perch in the legitimacy of the FDA and squanders it in a factually untrue statement. And I don't know what to say other than this is absolutely despicable and a new low for the FDA, a new low for the commissioner, absolutely unacceptable. Anyone who studies... FDA policy will know that to be the case. There's a good book by Dan Carpenter called Reputation and Precedent. It's a 700-page book about FDA, and it shows that reputation is built over time, hard-fought, and we are seeing it spent rather quickly in this administration. So let me go to number seven. Number seven, this, unlike the flu, unlike the uh, uh, unlike the flu, uh, FDA officials did not resign. Over COVID nine over flu boosters, the COVID nineteen booster resulted in the resignation of 
Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss from FDA, who said that they were uncomfortable with White House pressure to approve a one-size-fits-all booster policy for the entire American populace. They didn't resign year to year with flu shots. They didn't resign then. They're resigning now. And that is a salient difference. That's a big difference. That's something that these people who have worked in civil service, who have been drug, who have been vaccine regulators for all these years, this is the thing they resign over. You know when they didn't resign? They didn't resign when Donald Trump was president. They actually stayed in office, even though he was potentially putting a lot of pressure on vaccine approval. They didn't resign then. They resign now over the booster EUA. And that says something. It says very clearly that boosting COVID-19 is not the same thing as flu. Number eight. Number eight. I'm going to link to a post I wrote, but this is really about the people running the show currently. And I'm talking about Ashish Jha, Vivek Murthy, Rochelle Walensky, Anthony Fauci, um, uh, except for the last one, all of them are uh, uh, appointed by a political figure. And these people making decisions at this moment for this flu shot um, simply exhibit a pattern of gross incompetence, in my opinion, scientific and medical incompetence. These are the same people who say uh, uh, that uh, a toddler, a two-year-old should wear a mask. Uh, that's in contrast with the World Health Organization and almost basic common sense and basically all of evidence. Um, but they say that repeatedly. They say many things that are untrue, false, incorrect. They blunder repeatedly. These are people who are political appointees. They're not selected because they're the best scientists. They're certainly not. They're far from that. And they certainly are not equipped to think about complex policy decisions. And that's different than the flu vaccine year over year, which wasn't approved by a bunch of political hacks. Number nine, this is a tremendous quote by Ashish Jha. Ashish Jha, in an interview in the Bubble podcast, says, quote, he's asked about when people should get the updated booster. In general, I think it's really important for people to get it by Halloween, end quote. So the COVID-19 vaccine is interesting because we have a COVID-19 czar who's telling people you should get it by Halloween. We didn't have that for the flu shot, and that's yet another difference. That's difference number eight. And the reason that matters is, who, sorry, that's difference number nine. And the reason that matters is that one has to wonder if the real motivation to get it by Halloween is that they want to protect you for Thanksgiving or whatever story he's telling you, or if the real motivation is a political calculation, which is that this White House needed to push this booster right now so that you can get it a few days before the vote, because we cannot have a surge in cases right when we're voting. That's bad for our midterm election prospects. And the truth is nobody knows the answer, how much they're weighing the political calculus, because that's why you don't want political appointees making this decision. You need civil servants who are separate from political processes because you cannot trust a political appointee to make this decision in the absence of political considerations. And that's yet another difference than the flu shot where we didn't have to worry about that. Number 10. Number 10 is basically that the US FDA didn't typically serve as the marketing arm of Pfizer. There's some tweet by the FDA that says, recharge your immunity with the new bivalent booster. The FDA typically wasn't in the advertisement business for pharmaceutical firms. If the FDA wants, they can go and become the official marketing arm of Pfizer, but I don't think they want that because they're spilling their credibility and reputation in the process. And that didn't happen with flu shots. The FDA did not specifically market to extremely lucrative products that are earning the sponsors tens of billions of dollars. They didn't do that in the past. And number 11, number 11 is basically a quote by Paul Offit. This is what Paul Offit told, uh, I believe, MedPage today when asked about, will you receive the bivalent booster? This is Paul Offit, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, one of the most ardent defenders of vaccines, a man who himself has made a vaccine. His credentials on vaccines are second to none. This is what Paul Offit says. 
I received three doses of the ancestral strain vaccine and contracted a mild case of COVID in May. As a result, all the evidence suggests that I have high frequencies of virus-specific memory B and T cells, which should protect me against severe disease this winter. I do not plan on getting another dose of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines until it is clear that people who have been primed, boosted, and naturally infected are nonetheless at high risk of serious illness when encountering the virus. Paul Offit is not going to do it. And Paul Offit typically wasn't in the I'm not going to get my annual flu shot business, but Paul Offit is in the I'm not going to get my bivalent booster business. And that's yet another salient difference between this shot and the flu shot. So in short, in short, and I ended my tweet thread about this with this line. In short, comparing a novel mRNA booster tested in 8 to 12 mice for a strain of COVID that tens or potentially hundreds of millions of Americans have already had, because that's the nature of BA4 and 5, it's not what's coming in the future, it's what we've already had, um, for a virus with a sweeping age gradient and an IFR for the vast majority of middle age and younger people that's lower than flu, uh, in a politicized climate where the FDA is run by incompetent political hacks, uh, it's a flawed comparison. Okay, comparing that to the flu is absolutely flawed. Um, and, and that really is, I think, the takeaway message that this is fundamentally different across many domains. The comparison to flu is absolutely inappropriate, uh, ill-conceived, and closer to propaganda than science. Only somebody who doesn't understand anything about vaccines, medical science, and medical evidence, uh, who also doesn't understand history, reputation, and precedent, would make such a foolish and incorrect uh, comparison. And the fact that I see some scientists on TV saying that tells me volumes that they are people I don't trust, and I frankly think that they're not very good at thinking about this. There are many, many differences between the COVID-19 bivalent booster and flu shots. You can debate what the level of evidence should be for flu shots. I personally think it should be a heck of a lot higher than it is now. That should be the lesson of the 21st century. We can improve evidence, but there is no debate. The level of evidence for a COVID-19 bivalent booster has to be better than something between eight to 10 mice uh, studied. It has to be human studies. It has to be randomized studies powered for clinical outcomes. It has to have the power to see differences by age and prior infection status. And until they generate that evidence, I think people would naturally be reluctant to do it, as Paul Offit is. So this is my video, 11 differences. I'm a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics. I'm a practicing doctor. If you like this video, this is what you get on the channel. You get uh, evidence-based appraisal of complex biomedical so topics and, and policy topics of the day. So like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, and until next time.